If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Hoop Dreams, the podcast, an Unlearning Network production. The man joining us today is a Chicago native. I'm going to call him Chicago's very own. Played college ball for Princeton Tigers, where he was a two-time league, Ivy League player of the year. He was drafted by the Sixers and played professionally overseas for Manchester in the British League. He's worked in finance as a trader, an investment banker, but his true passion has been coaching. He coached at Northwestern University, Brown University head coach at Oregon State University and has worked as the VP of Player Development for the Bucks and the Knicks and is currently the Executive Director of the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Oh, and one other thing. He's also, ha <laughs> y'all ready for this? Michelle Obama's brother. Yes, that Michelle Obama. Welcome to the show, Craig. I'm Will Gates, that's my dog. Arthur AG in the building. Thanks, Coach, for coming on, man. I still call you Coach. Oh, that's nice of you guys. And let me tell you something. You you guys uh, don't have to introduce yourselves to me. You you're legends in the Chicago area, and 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 I'm gonna tell you every single every time Hoop Dreams comes on, that's one of my movies where if it's on and I'm flipping through channels, I'm stopping, I'm watching whatever part it is until I see until it's time for me to do something else. So. I want to I want to thank you guys for having me on and thank thank you for all you're doing. It's great to see you guys back on the scene and it's great to be here with you. Well, man, it's it's, it's our pleasure. But coach, we got you now, man. So yeah, we do. all start out and kick our show off this way. When was the first time that you saw Hoop Dreams and where were you? Were you with some people? I so I was trying to remember that when when Arthur texted me to be on the show and I was trying and, and I know now since we've talked a little bit that it was it was it was 94 because I was trying to remember was it 93 or was it 94 and and I hadn't gotten into coaching yet so I was I was still working in investment banking so I must have been at home watching this when it when it first came out or 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 in Chicago watching it and what I remember about that was that it really hit home for me because most people don't realize while I grew up on the South side and Woodlawn and South shore, and I went to Mount Carmel high school, when I first started playing basketball, I played at the Chatham YMCA for the bitty basketball team there and ended up going over to the West side and playing at Martin Luther King boys club. So all those scenes of the West side just brought memories flooding back to me playing ball outside, playing ball at, 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 uh, uh, at, in the Red West. Yes, yes. St. Joe's. And, you know, I grew up playing bitty basketball with Isaiah, so I had been over to St. Joe's a lot, and I, know, I knew Coach Pingator. Uh, so that, 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 was, that was when, you know, so that was my first reaction to, this, to, to the movie was, watching you guys and I was older than right I'm older than you guys so I was watching these young guys and I had been living in New York and moved back to Chicago 
And uh, I just I, the, the movie spoke to me because I was I was a hooper like everybody else. Yeah, that that was gonna be my next. That was gonna be my our next question. Did it influence you in any type of way, Coach? Well, you know, at, by then I was I was co- I was probably coaching. See, I started out when I was still working coaching just little kids. I was coaching my kids and and kids in the neighborhood. We had a small little team. It wasn't any kind of AAU team. Mm-hmm. And it really reinforced for me how hard it is to make it playing ball, right? Like all the all the the uh, trials and tribulations that you guys went through that was well, clearly documented. Mm-hmm. That just reminded me how fortunate people are to get to play even in yeah. high school, because when you're dealing with you're dealing with injuries. You're dealing with home issues. You're dealing with school issues. And then all of a sudden, people start to realize that you've got this talent. And it just made me want to, to, to sort of give back and make sure that those stories get heard by younger folks so that they know it's just as important to get that education. Actually, it's more important to get that education because really it's so hard to make it just in college. That was what I learned from the movie. Man, it's still powerful to this day. I'm, I'm like you guys are like rock stars to me. I'm, I'm more excited to be here than you I'm, are. I don't know about that, about that one, about that, Coach. We, we, I don't know about that one, man. We, we've been waiting on this one, but Coach, I want to, I want to ask you this. Um, tell us about your origin story, the, the Robinson, the home life, childhood, growing up, where you grew up at. How was home? You know, I, I was, I was very fortunate. Um, to grow up in a family where um, both my parents were in the home. You know, my my dad worked for the city of Chicago. He he worked for the post office first when I was first born, when I was little. And then he moved over to the water department. We lived in Woodlawn right off of, uh, in Parkway Garden Homes, right off of King Drive, kind of like a co-op. It wasn't quite a project, but it was a co-op. But there was you know, there was always the academic influence in my house. My, my parents always wanted us to, to be good students. And, and, and it was, they did it in a really cool way. We ne- I never felt the pressure of having to be a straight A student. They just encouraged me to do my best in school and, uh, and, and do my best at everything else. And, and, and people have heard this story, but I'll tell it to, to tell it to your folks out here. My dad had MS from the time that I, w- I can remember. He walked with a limp and got progressively worse. So he had crutches that went around your arms and, and, and that you held. And he got up and went to work every day. So that kind of work ethic was kind of, it was hard for any of us not to get up and go do what we were supposed to do if he's doing it every day. And so he got the job at the water department and we moved over to the South shore, which was a better neighborhood than uh, Woodlawn at the time. And, uh, you know, I just started going to school and, and doing what kids do. And I didn't really focus on basketball. I really was, I thought I was going to be a baseball player. Baseball was my sport. Mm. And I played organized baseball before I played organized basketball. At, at the age of 11, I started playing organized basketball. And like I said, uh, I, I started out at the at the uh, Chatham YMCA playing bitty basketball there and then subsequently ended up going over to the west side mm. 
to your neck of the woods and playing at, at, at Martin Luther King Boys Club. And my dad said, this will be good for you because he liked the coach who was Johnny Gage, who still, he lives he lives in Chicago to this day. Mm-hmm. Johnny coached coached his teams hard and, and, and my dad wanted me to play for him. And, uh, and uh, Isaiah Thomas was on the team. Willie Scott was on the team. Wow. Uh, the Dorches. They were on the team. <laughs> Bernard and Greg Dorch were on the on that team. Bob, the Moody brothers were on that team. Uh, uh, Greg and Bobby Moody. It was funny because we all used to be the same height, and I kept growing, and all those guys <laughs> stayed all the same height. So, uh, and and that was really that my identity was really with West Side ball players, other than playing for my school, because. Mm. Um, you know, back then, folks were scared to, if you lived on the South Side, you were scared to go over to the West Side. And if you lived on the West Side, you were scared to come over to the South Side. So yeah. that that was kind of, that was my origin story with regard to basketball. And mm. then from there, I was I was fortunate enough to get recruited, went to a couple of basketball camps. And you go, you guys know, the, 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 the AAU scene now is ridiculous. Like if I, if there, if I played in as many AAU tournaments as these guys do, I probably would have gone to, like Duke or North Carolina or something, but I played in two AAU tournaments my whole life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was fortunate enough to get recruited to Princeton and play, and uh, and then the rest is history. I mean, you know, going to a school like that just changes your life, and that that's really that's really how that worked out for me. Now, coach, growing up, was it just you? Was it just you and Michelle? Yeah, it's just the two of us. Now, now how close yeah. were you guys' relationship growing up? We were really close because so we're we're like twenty months apart. Okay, and we were each other's best friends. We played with each other more than we played with anybody else uh, uh, until I started playing organized sports. Mm-hmm. So she was the person I played baseball with, softball, wow, football. We played. Uh, they used to. They used to. Uh, you remember how they used to freeze the parks over in Chicago in the wintertime? I I, I played hockey. <laughs> she, she ice skated with me. Uh, and then when we go to. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The park and play basketball. She and I, be she'd be the one out there playing with me all the time. And it's so interesting because back then, and we're talking about sort of the the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. really more early 70s, there was plenty of organized sports stuff for boys, but none for girls. She'd never really got into the sporting scene like I did. And 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 she was she was much more of a, a, a an intellect and better student than I was, even though I was a good student. She was she was a really good student. But we were, man, we were really close and and still are to this day. We talk to each other all the time. And as you know, I went to Princeton and she was trying to decide what school she was going to. Mm-hmm. And she she went into she went to Whitney Young High School, went into her guidance counselor and said, she said, where are you going to school? She's like, I'm going to Princeton. They were like, well, how do you know you're going to get into Princeton? She's like, oh, my brother's there. If he can get in, I know I'm getting in. <laughs> like, wow. Who just says that? Like, oh, if my brother got in, I'm definitely getting in. I'm definitely getting it. in. I know how he I works. I love it. I love it. Well, Coach, <laughs> where did you get this love for the game? Because if you're the older brother, who put the basketball in your hand? Actually, my dad did. Even though he couldn't run, 
he loved basketball. He he never played. Once a year, we take a trip up to Michigan and we stayed at this Duke's this place called Duke's Happy Holiday Resort. And when when it sounds like a big resort, but you know what it really was? It was like a motel that had a place where you could barbecue, a pool, a basketball court, and a tennis court. That was it. That was it. I thought it was like I I was like we're going to Michigan on vacation. That was and that's what we did. And and they had a basketball court. And he and I used to be out there just messing around playing. And like I said, he was limping around and rebounding. And I was shooting. And he was like, man, you could be pretty good at this game. And I just enjoyed being out there with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any thought of ever playing any further because I didn't know you could do that. Because, mm. it, it, because back then, the only thing you saw on TV really were the Bears and the Cubs. And I couldn't watch. The, I, I'm on the South Side. I couldn't even be a Sox fan because my bedtime was 7.30. The Sox would come on at 7 o'clock. Wow. So I would I would come home and watch the Cubs games after school. Mm. They really didn't show the Bulls that tough back then. And if the Bulls were ever any good, the games were on tape delay. So it was it was late, it was too late at night for me. Yeah, these young kids don't know about tape delay, coach. They don't know about <laughs> tape delay. They can see every single game they want to see. <laughs> but 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 that was that was really the beginnings of 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 the love of the game. And then I started playing bitty basketball at the Y. Mm. When I played at the Y, that was when it was the first time you got uniforms with a number on the front and the back, and mm-hmm. they had referees. And and for folks who don't know, I should say bitty basketball was like a miniature version of basketball. They had these baskets they hooked on to regular size baskets that made that made the hoop and the backboard eight feet tall. Yeah. And they had a wide European lane. Yeah. Yeah. They still and do that. The ball was smaller than a women's ball. It was kind of like a youth ball, but it was it was proportionate for little kids. So that's why people back in the day could shoot so well because you learn shooting on a ball that wasn't too big or too heavy for you. So you could start with the ball over your head early. Right. And um, and I just took to it. And and, and I, I really took to football, but my parents wouldn't let me play football organized, especially at a school like Mount Carmel. They said, th- they said, no, you, you, you go out there and get your head knocked out. But <laughs> <laughs> well, coach, you know, we you know what we learned the game was it was on the playground. And that's where most of us where we went to, you know, get that you know, that real gritty, tough playing against grown men and other people. But that's where you made your name at. You got your nickname. When you was coming up, did you have, when you were getting good and taller growing, did did the neighborhood give you a nickname? They did. And you're going to laugh when you hear it because it it what it didn't have anything it didn't have anything to do with abilities right <laughs> it had everything to do with the way i look they call me slim <laughs> what <laughs> cuz i was like a stick i was a stick man that's a black yeah. that's a black exploitation movie name <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> no, it was that. That was that was the one nickname. Cause see, yeah, it, it, with, with a name like Craig, you can't you can't shorten it or anything. So, uh, so yeah, Slim. Slim was, was was the nickname I got from playing at, up at the park when I played with the older guys. Little Slim. <sighs> see, if you was playing now, they'd be calling you C Rob. If you was playing now, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right, yep. Yeah. 
and 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 it's funny, you know, you know, I I I played in all these leagues that Chicago had. I played in the pro league at IIT, at Chicago State, mm-hmm. at Triton, at Fernwood. And and so by the time I got older, they were calling me the professor because I was so old playing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, coach, you went to high school at Mount Carmel and and all boys schools. I relate to that. St. Joe's all boys school. Yep. What, what was that experience like for you and uh and how diverse was the school at that time, if it was diverse at all? Well, great, great question, Will. It 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 was slightly diverse. There was probably at the time that I went to Mount Carmel, we were probably five percent black mm. and Hispanic. So not much at all, but at least we had a a, a subset, and the, and the the total number of school, the students was about three hundred and fifty. Mm. So it was my real first interaction on a daily basis with white folks, mm. and it was I'm glad I had that because you know Chicago back then was still a very segregated place, like folks on the southeast side came to Mount Carmel. Some folks on the Southwest side would come over to Mount Carmel. You'd have some kids from the inner city, but most of the kids came from Catholic. Most of the black kids came from Catholic grammar schools. So I was one of the few, one of the few kids that I knew who came from a public school. And I, and my, my, my grammar school, my elementary school or middle school and, and, and lower school now is what they call them. But we used to call them elementary school were predominantly black. Like when we first moved there, when I was in kindergarten, we had two or three white kids in kindergarten. And by the time I was in sixth grade, we didn't have any more white folks in the school. Wow. In that short period of time, that's how the neighborhood changed. Mm. But to get back to Mount Carmel, it was a it was a really good and challenging academic environment there. But that's when I had my first real dealing with just people who were racist, because I won't say everybody was racist, because right. I had some really cool uh, white friends like you guys probably did growing up, especially playing basketball, because yeah. if you, you're on a team, it's hard to have any racist dudes that you're playing with and trying to win any games. But there were guys, there was individuals at the school, just like your typical kind of guys who try and bully you or try and talk some smack. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my, you know, my parents really helped me sort of learn how to navigate through those kind of treacherous waters. And, and most of the time, I, uh, I, they helped me, they taught me to be empathetic to those folks because if somebody was dumb enough to try and use the N-word or try and start something with me at Mount Carmel in the neighborhood I was in, because yeah. we were right there where the Blackstone Ranges were. Wow. It would be, you know, all I have to do is say, you know, Get the brothers out on <laughs> if if I needed to. Coach was so, giving the word. Coach was giving the word. Uh, but I'm telling you, my mom and dad were like, "Listen, you have to understand that some of the most of these guys have never even met. They haven't ever even run into or uh, interacted with anybody of color, mm. and they don't know what they're doing. And the world is set up for them to be entitled. And, and that was when I first heard the word entitlement from my parents. Mm. And so. I, I rarely had any kind of racial interaction, negative racial interactions at Mount Carmel. And, you know, the great thing about Mount Carmel was just about everybody played a sport. 
Yeah. So that helped the integration process because you had black guys on the football team. You had black guys on the baseball team. You had black guys on the wrestling team, black guys on the track. So even though the school was mostly white, folks had to interact with us. Right. And and like anything else, once they saw that you weren't going back down and, and you were just like they were, it, it got to be it was a fun place to go to school. And 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 Will, you you tell me if that if that's wasn't the same for you at at, at St. Joe's because I, I I would imagine St. Joe's was the same. It it, it was, Coach, and I was going to just ask a follow up question to that because at St. Joe's, the basketball team was predominantly black. There were a few black athletes on the football team and and a couple on the baseball team. It it was few. What about those other sports like you know soccer and? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Golf and the swim teams. Because yeah. I've always kind of felt some, felt some of that. I guess I didn't know what it was at the time, that interracial tension. Because yeah. when you was at St. Joe's, and this was my question for you, when you were at Carmel, did they know you were there for basketball? Because when AG and I went to St. Joe's, they knew we were there for basketball. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because I wasn't on scholarship. Like there were some brothers there who were on scholarship. I was like a walk-on. Like I, I the the reason why I ended up going to Mount Carmel was my my parents had me take a test at Carmel, at St. Ignatius. And at this place called Campion, which was up in Wisconsin, it was like a boarding school. They were all about the academics. And I tested my way into Mount Carmel. Like I said, I was in the honors program. So I wasn't even there. I had to try out for the basketball team. So they knew I wasn't there for basketball until I got on the basketball court. Then they were like, ooh, what we got here? And, um, and, and I remember my freshman year, I played, because see, if you got recruited, Guys played on the on the sophomore team if they were freshmen. I was on the freshman team because they didn't know who I was. By the end of the day, I was on JV and I would be sitting on the bench for varsity every now and then. So uh, then they knew I was there for basketball. But I did do well in school and in class. So folks gave me my props when it came to the intellectual side. So I didn't get just you get treated just like an athlete. That, that's what I experienced too, Coach, at when I was at St. Joe's because, like you said, the um, it wasn't racial tension. It was more of then, if you were a basketball player, they treated you differently. Even though if they didn't, if they had some tension with with a black person or just black people in general, but you were on the basketball team, they didn't let you know that they would, you know, that they felt some type of way. So I never really had any type of. Uh, friends at at St. Joe's when I went with you know with with racism and they would say certain things under their breath. I had, I never had any of that. My first racial experience for me happened when I went to uh, junior college in Missouri. Okay, but uh, I was gonna also say if you remember in Hoop Dreams when William Gates come back from his visit at Marquette and Will, you could take it from here because you know what I'm hitting on. Well, it was it was the scene in the movie, and this was what I was saying earlier too, Coach. Where I didn't. I didn't know that there were certain, and I and I won't. And I'm with AG. I won't call it racist because Coach Doyle, man, was a great man. Rest in peace. Um, but when I got back off my uh, visit, his question to me was, uh, "Did you meet with the people who's in charge of the black people?" And I'm just like, 
like that was like that blew my mind. Like I didn't even know how to respond to that because I didn't know where to take it. And I know he didn't mean anything by it. Yeah. But I think his well, well, I just think he didn't know how to ask the question appropriately. So it kind of just but if you if you hearing that and you seeing that on TV, you go like, that's probably one of the most racist, insensitive things I've heard in a long time. I remember that part of the movie. And Arthur, it sounds like you what, what what you had to deal with this when you were at your junior college, but you you also were dealing with this at St. Joe's. You just didn't know you were dealing with it. Yeah. Is that you pick up on little things like that that are now called microaggressions, mm-hmm. and that people don't mean to do them, but they're offensive, mm-hmm. right? And we, as a people, have had to learn how to navigate the world with getting hit in the face with all these microaggressions to the point where we don't even realize that they're like little nicks here and there and they start to eat away at you and mess with your mental health. Mm-hmm. But what I what what I gleaned from that movie was that because I think both of you guys were bigger recruits than I was, right? You had more colleges looking at you than I I, I did. And I just liked the the movie doesn't talk about it, but the way you guys sort of navigated through all of the stuff that you had to go through, including statements like that and, you know, going away to school for the first time and all the, you know, having a kid and all of that just showed how tough it is growing up, irrespective of where you come from. Life comes at you, you know? As my mom says, stuff happens because she doesn't like saying yeah, right. the other thing. Right. Right. <laughs> Coach, let me ask you this. Uh, and I, I mean, yeah. I, I'm kind of going ahead a little bit, but I had, I asked a few people around about you because I needed to I need to I need to know what 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 coach really Craig Robinson was like when he would come back home for the summers. Now, I yeah. heard you played at Chicago State. For one of my for one of my guys, his grandfather, and you played oh, with yeah. MJ, Reggie Theus, Craig Hodges, JJ Anderson, Ricky Green, Mo Cheeks, Ty Corbin, Al Frederick Hughes. You play with these guys at the summer pro league. Yeah, in the summer pro league, I, I was playing against those guys every summer, and I played for um, Playboy. Yeah, that's what he said the name of the team was. Reggie Theus was on our team. David Greenwood was on our team. And um, Quentin Daly was on our team. And I, I played and I would I started, you know, I, I, I was balling with these dudes. I was playing against Michael Jordan and playing against Terry Cummings and Teddy Grubbs and yeah. Mark Aguirre. Mark played on another team. And these dudes all thought that I would be in the league with them too. And mm-hmm. I, I, so did I after I was playing in the summers. And uh, and I attribute that to my years gr- playing, growing up and playing on the, on the West side. Wow. Because when I was, when I was only, and you guys, I, they, I don't know if they still did this because the, the IHSA might've changed the rules. But when I was 15 years old, so I was a 14, I was a, Young, I was young for my age because mm-hmm. I skipped a grade. But in my sophomore year of high school, I played in the pro league with Sonny Parker, Tony Parker, mm. Maurice Cheeks, Marcellus Starks. And I was a kid. 
and 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 here's what they did. They didn't like I got in the game and I was trying to just fit in. I'm passing the ball and cutting through uh-huh. and getting rebounds and throw. I ain't taking any shots. And they were like, uh-uh, Craig, no, no, you got to play. If you're going to be out here, you got to play. You got to take shots. You got to take guys to the hoop. And they would I, they would ISO, ISO me on one side, and, and so I couldn't throw it to anybody. Those dudes made me play. Yeah. And Sonny Parker was the he was the head honcho. And I don't I don't know if you guys even remember seeing him play, but he was one of the first big guards, right. six six guards. And he, he and Reggie Theus are who I fashioned my game after. And those guys were the reason why I could play in that league every summer. And people were like, Who's this kid from Princeton? <laughs> Coach, they also told me that you went and won a three on three in the NBA championship in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't in Madison Square Garden, but we won the national three on three championship. But this was after college, after college. Uh, so, some teammates of mine, John Rogers, who who owns Aerial Capital Management in Chicago. OK. Is one of the reasons why I went to Princeton. Kit Miller played at Morton Grove, went to Princeton. You know, I've been friends with Arnie since since high school. Arnie played at Harvard. He was the only Harvard guy we'd let in there. So it was me, John Kitt, uh, a guy by the name of Eric Kuby, uh, and and myself. And 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 we'd switch some guys in and out. So I'm probably leaving some guys out. But we competed in the national hoop it up three on three, which was a which was a worldwide tournament. Wow. And we were we were national champions. After after and, and they used to have a three on three in Chicago called Shoot the Bull. Shoot the Bull, we won twice. Yeah, so we were a really good three on three team. We were a really good three on three team. Yeah. Talk about the love of the game. I I the the only reason I stopped playing was because I became a head coach in college and I didn't want to get hurt because it would look crazy if I came out onto the gym with my knee all banged up. Mm-hmm, right, right. Trying to coach <laughs> trying to coach my team. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Coach, because we want we want to jump into your college because you know you how how did you pick Princeton? How did you get there? Were there other schools involved in your recruiting? Yeah, there were, and this was a real interesting journey for me to get to Princeton. So before there was the Nike All American Camp, you remember the Nike All American Camp that was at Princeton? Yep. It started out in in, in with from a guy in Chicago named. Uh, Chick Share, Arthur Share, and he he had athletes for better education. That was the precursor to the Nike camp. Mm-hmm. That became the Nike All American camp, and it was up in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And he re, he he invited the top one hundred players from Chicago to be up at the camp. Now, unbeknownst to me, he was a Princeton grad. Oh. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. So I was at the camp and I was on the team with Daryl Walker, who ended up who went to Corliss, ended yeah. up going to Arkansas, played in the NBA. He and I were tearing the camp up. Like we were playing against. Isaiah and them, Doc Rivers was there, Terry Cummings was there, Ter- Teddy Grubb. So all of a sudden, I'm like playing really well. But I'm not, I'm not hearing from too many schools, and I'm wondering why. And I I I found out that the the guy who ran the camp was from Princeton. He was telling everybody, oh, 
Yeah, Craig, he can play, but he's going to Princeton. He was telling people that. What? I didn't know it. I didn't know it. Yes. But the University of Washington still recruited me. The University of Texas Arlington, which had a lot of guys from around my way. Jeff Stewart went down there. A lot of South CVS guys went down there. So uh, I, I, the, the, I knew those guys. So the coach recruited me. Kentucky State and Princeton. Those were the four choices I had. Wow. And, uh, and, and I was all set to go to the University of Washington because I don't know if you guys know this, but Princeton doesn't give athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. So I had to fill out a financial aid form. And back then, Princeton tuition, which seems like nothing now, was full out was 13 grand and our family's contribution was going to be 2000 and something. Right. Wow. Well, that might as well have been 2 million to me. Right. I would have, I I was like, Oh man, that's, there's no way we, I can come up with $2,775. So my dad asked, it was time for me to decide what, where I was going to college. We're sitting in our apartment, small kitchen, kitchen tables, like right here. My dad's at the head of the table. I'm at the other end. My mom's doing dishes right at the sink. My sister's nowhere to be found. And my dad says, well, ma'am, where are you thinking about going? And I said, well, think I'm going to go to the University of Washington. And, and my dad did what dads do when you make the wrong decision, right? He leaned his head way back and he rubbed his face real slow. And he shook, he put his chin to his chest and he shook his head. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, how could, what, what did I do wrong? Because I knew that look, that means he wasn't happy. But he calmly said, he's like, tell me, how did you uh, come to your decision? And I, and I was ready for him. I had my criteria, right? My rationale. I said, well, I said, they've got engineering because I thought I was going to be an engineer. I was good at math and science. I said, they're in the pack eight. If you can believe this, there were only eight schools in the pack 12. Back wow. then. I was like, they're in the pack eight. I said, I played pickup with those guys when I went to visit. And I think by the time I'm a junior, I think I could be starting, but I'll definitely play as a freshman. And I said, and the best part about it, dad, is that it's free. Mm. And my dad said, now, now, now check this out. Now this is a man ain't got one pot to you know what in yeah we struggling on one one salary my mom's a homemaker he said if you pick your school based on how much i have to pay i'm gonna be disappointed and hearing that from my hero who gets up and goes to work crippled every day that's what we used to call it you know even though that's that's that that's that's politically incorrect these days but he was he was dragging his legs to work every day. If he was disappointed, the whole house was disappointed. So he said, why don't you think about it? And we'll talk about it tomorrow night. So jump ahead the next night, exact same situation. I'm sitting across from him. My mom's doing the dishes. My sister's nowhere to be found. And I and he said, so have you thought about what I said? And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, I actually liked and and when I before I could get the instant out, he said, "Fine, you'll go to Princeton." Get out of <laughs> so here! He knew he knew that that's where I should have gone, but he wanted me to come up with the decision. Wow! And that's how I ended up at Princeton. And guys, I tell you, I tell people all the time: basketball played a big part in my life, and I would never trade it in for anything. But going to Princeton changed my life. 
yeah. changed my life entirely. Wow. All this stuff that has happened to me would I, it could have happened at a, from out of another school. Yeah, but um, it I mean it really was. I mean from from the the, the fact that I went there, then my sister, of course, of course, she went there, and I told you earlier she went there because she knew if I was going to be there, she right. was going to go there and be fine. And and she ended up going to law school and and, and meeting Barack and the rest is history. You know, it, it was just it was it was great for me to, to be able to sort of get an opportunity to do all the things that I can do. And it, it just brings me back to what I try and tell young people all the time is, man, a good education. You can do every you could try everything. You could try everything because people know that if you can get through getting a good education, you can probably get through anything. Now, Coach, going to Princeton, did you have an impression of what Princeton was like? Meaning, like, not not going up there for the basketball camp, but just going to school there before you went there. Did you have an impression of, I think Princeton is like this. So I was thinking, okay, everybody here is going to be as smart as the guys who I play basketball are as good at basketball. That's how, that was like the pros, the the division the one of academics. So I was a little intimidated, right? Mm. I was I was a little intimidated because, you know, what I came to realize when I got to Princeton, I thought I was a good student, but I was just good at taking tests and getting good grades. I wasn't really a good student yet. Yeah. And I learned that when I got there because my first semester was terrible and I was I almost came home, man. I I was I was on the phone after I got my midterm grades to my dad, and I was crying my eyes out. And in a phone booth, which your 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 people listening to this, most of these young people don't even know what a phone booth is. <laughs> but you used to have to go find a phone booth to call home and right. not have your phone in your pocket <laughs> and have your whole cup full of quarters so you could just keep feeding them in so you could talk to your family. So I'm in there crying and I'm putting my quarters in and I'm like, I'm in over my head. I got two C's, a D and an F on my midterms. And I, I this is too much. And my dad said, my dad said, calm down, calm down. Now, now, let me remind you, my dad didn't go to college. He didn't go to college. So he's like, calm down. He said, how many people go to that school? And I'm like thinking, dad, what does that have to do with anything? I was right. like, uh, about 4,400. And he's like, so that makes about 1,100 in the freshman class. And he said, well, you know what? You're not going to be number one in the class. <laughs> Let's like, get that out the way. <laughs> you're not going to be number one in the class. And then he said, which was the most profound thing, he said, you're not going to be number 1,100 either. This is why you go to a good school. Just fight your way through it. You'll figure it out. You just get your degree from Princeton and the rest will work itself out. Now, this is from a man who didn't spend, he spent like, I think he went to college for like a month and then dropped out. Right. And, and man, it is a lesson in perseverance, but it's also a lesson in parenting, right? Like he wasn't going to let me quit like all these guys who end up stopping and then they're like, all right, I'm done. I'm going over here where it might be easy. He was like, fight through it, fight through it. And you'll be okay. I believe in you. And sure enough, you know, I just needed to learn how to study. I didn't really know. You guys know, you know how it was when you got to college. It's a whole different thing. You got to read stuff 
that's not assigned to you. You got to look at the syllabus and figure out, oh, this is what we got coming up. You got to do stuff ahead of time. You got to be going in and talking to the professors and saying, hey, listen, I didn't quite get what you meant here. Can you mm-hmm. show me? And, and what I found out was teachers don't have any interest in failing you. They want to pass you. So they're going to give you all the help you need to help you get through. So again, it changed my life. It changed the, the way I thought about stuff. And man, coming out of a place like Princeton, Arthur, to your point, I had this preconceived notion that everybody was smarter than me. But by the time I left, I felt like I was as smart as anybody out there. As long as I could read and figure out stuff, I could do anything. I could do anything. Coach, that's crazy because Will said the same thing in Hoop Dreams. When he when he was like, this is Catholic school, I'm out. He was like, I just thought in my head, this is like, you know, these people must be smarter than me. So yep. it, and they and they wasn't. He found out like how did that how did that that semester end for you? It was fine. So what I did was I switched out of engineering, which I shouldn't have been in the first place because I had never taken calculus and you need calculus for all that stuff. So I switched out and I switched to sociology and I was taking some religion classes and some philosophy classes. And that was more my line where you can sit in class and kind of talk about what you read. And it, it wasn't it wasn't so objective. And I did fine. I ended up passing by easily the worst grades I'd ever gotten. But it was also the best feeling I had gotten because I really thought I was on the I was on the cliff with my fingers holding on <laughs> and about to fall off and I pulled myself up. It was such a good feeling to be able to say, okay, I think I can do this. And then the next year was even better. The next year was better. And then by the time I had gotten to grad, I went back to graduate school to get my MBA. I was a really good student again. I was like, I knew how to, I knew how to manage college and higher education. You know, it's just you just got to read more and you got to read ahead and 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 know what they're looking for. Coach, you said something, man, that that shoot just hit me again. That teachers they're not in the business to see you fail. I mean, right. I think so many kids miss that because they think teachers are against their success. But man, that just that just struck a chord with me. But. I got I got a I got a question for you because you, you you play for a legendary coach, but before you go down there, man, I just I just I gotta touch on this because you've been talking so much about your dad. Tell us who was your dad, because just that wisdom that you just churning out, man, is just like wow. I, I will say, and and I always talk about my dad, but my mom was just as as she had just as much wisdom, right? She, she, she was right there with him and they were a team. But I will tell you, man, my dad, and it wasn't like, my, my dad was like, he was out in them streets when he was young. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 he could have gone one way or the other. He was with the cool dudes. He smoked weed a little bit. And it was so funny because when, he, when I got old enough for him to tell me that, I was like, Get out of here. You ain't <laughs> I could not believe it. And he was telling me how he used to hide it in his sleeve. And when the police stopped him, he'd push his sleeves up so the we the joint would go up. And they would he'd be like, I don't have anything on me. And I mean he was telling me all this stuff like like he was some smooth dude on the streets. And then what Arthur did when he wanted to find out about me, I went and asked some of his dude, his boys. I was like, they were like, oh. They used to call him Diddley. They like, oh, Diddley was a bad man. I'm like, get out of here. He was a nice, nice guy with, with crutches. That's that's what I knew. But he, you know what he had? He had common sense, 
he could read people. And then I, I told you this earlier when I was talking about Mount Carmel and dealing with people of a different race. He was always empathetic. So he always took the view of what's going through the other guy's mind. Now, yeah. in the streets, that's strategic, right? It's not empathetic, it's strategic. But he was really, I could, he's like, before you judge a guy, just try and figure out what he's about. And then maybe you can, you can, you can figure him out and figure out why he's doing certain things. And my father was always the guy who people came to for advice. His younger brothers, my mom's family, my friend's parents, my friends. I mean, he just had a way about him. He was a likable dude. He was never afraid to say, he and my mom both. I don't know. Let me find out before he get. He wouldn't just give me an answer, like, because I said so. He would say, you know, that's a good question, Craig. Let me, let me do some research before I give you an answer. That was one of those things, as you know, back in the day, most parents are like, it's because I said so. All right. So go sit down somewhere. Absolutely. He was not like that. So he, that was what my dad was like. And he was involved. Right. And he, uh, he worked a swing shift. Right. So he couldn't always make it to games because he might be working afternoons where you work from, from two in the afternoon till 10 at night. But when he wasn't working afternoons, if he was working nights where he, he went from 10 at night to six in the morning. He would get up and go to my games, take us to school. He'd find a way to nap in between. But that dude was, he was present. He was present all the time. For for your dad, I mean, the, the will and strength that this guy must have had, I mean, as we all know what MS is today, for him to have yeah. that and not complain, and you say this dude had two jobs? He did not complain at one bit. And not only he 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 worked for the post office and then he was he had two jobs. And then after that, he just worked for the water department and he was working these swing shifts. But he was also a precinct captain for the Democratic Party, because when you work for the city of Chicago, in order to keep your job, you had to go out and hustle for votes and stuff like that. He was. Yeah, he never complained. And so my oldest son is 29. So my dad died 30 years ago. So he missed all of this stuff. He missed all of my coaching. He missed the White House stuff. He missed my sister being the first lady, Barack. He he, he met Barack um, when they first met. But by the time, I think it was probably the, the year before they got married, he passed away. So he missed all of this. But he's the reason for all of this. Through his, through his son and his daughter. I truly believe, because I look at my my 11-year-old, mm -hmm. reminds me of my father. He does facial expressions, and he's got the kind of personality that my father has, Which and he never met him. So it's not because he's mimicking wow. him. He never met what? him. What? But he reminds me of him. Does he know that? I tell him that all the time, but he doesn't know him. He only sees has seen pictures of him. And he's 11. That's what I was just about to say. He's 11. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Everybody's trying to cash in on the next best crypto. But if you want to guarantee a way to double your money, all you need to do is use promo code HoopDreams at MyBookie. It's simple. Sign up at MyBookie with promo code HoopDreams, and your first deposit is immediately doubled up to $1,000. How's that for a quick turnaround on your investment? 
With the NBA season in full swing, the NFL playoff race is heating up, and college bowl season is just around the corner. W Firepower at my bookie to get action in on the most important games of the season. Build your own props, create multiple game parlays, and take part in a host of my bookie cash prize contests. This is the best time of the year to both watch and bet on sports because you already know who the winners are by now. Don't miss out. Double your first deposit by using promo code HoopDreams, all caps, one word, and keep your eyes peeled for more exclusive holiday promotions coming soon at mybookie.ag. Remember, at mybookie, you can bet anything, anywhere, anytime. AG, now we got this thing called halftime. We got to okay. do halftime with you. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with some these some quick hitters. And um, first one was, I know you don't remember this, but I remember this. When Michael Jordan was making that comeback, we was all over at Hoops the Gym. <laughs> yeah. I was in there playing. You, Arnie Duncan. Yeah. The first time I walked right. in there, the 1990-91 Chicago Bulls team, <laughs> Bill Wellington. I'm like, these dudes, you know, all the games organized by Tim Grover. What yeah. what was that experience like for you during that time? Well, you know, I had gotten to know Michael because you know, when he wanted to get a run in, he'd call us up, at least until he got back in shape. And what I tell people about that that I remember the most was people talk about how competitive dudes are, right? And, and you know, we all play ball. We all have friends who are competitive, a little over the edge sometimes, a little too much. It's like, come on, man, calm down. We know when to be competitive, when the game's on the line. or we, But when we just messing around, just chill. That dude, let me tell you, he was playing against us like he was playing against the Pistons. And there was one play where, and, and, and this is the great thing about how you know that he's just a regular guy, right? Like he's like, he's like us, but he's just Michael Jordan. So he's playing and he's into it. And I go up for a move and he fouls me like he is like, you know, he fouled me so hard. I'm laying down and I could see the look on his face like he thought I was hurt. And and uh and and he he came over, he's like, You all right? Craig, you all right? I was like, Yeah, I'm fine. He's like, get the fuck up then. <laughs> so That's, him. <laughs> That's what he said. I was like, What have you you were just concerned? He's just concerned. I was like, okay. And then he proceeded to like go hard at me to make sure he knew that I he make sure I knew that he wasn't soft or anything, because he was coming to check on me. It was a, it was the craziest thing because he was like, "Hey, hey, Craig, you all right?" It's like, "Well, get up there." <laughs> all right, let me hit you. Let me hit you with this one, Coach. Who okay. wins a one on one between you and, and Barack? I would win that, and he would say that. You know, he's a, who he's would a, win back a, in two thousand eight when you guys were a little younger. I would win. He say, "Still, I would, I would win." win. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I'm a, you know, he's a decent player good pickup player uh-huh. but you know he's like he would he would he would be like a division three college player oh okay so he could play but he was a little light and um and basketball was his game he liked it but it, it wasn't like a full-time thing like it was for guys who played all the time like like we do right right no offense well, i'm gonna add on to that coach when y'all was hooping playing one-on-one i just gotta ask this did he ever have to stop the game and say, hey, man, listen, I got to go talk to the president. 
<laughs> no, with, with, whenever we had those kind of pickup games, he had he had it scheduled in. So like he's like, all right, I got an hour and a half where I can just I can just poop. What you do realize though that uh, what I didn't realize is how important that job is. Like hanging around him at the White House and in the Oval Office and mm-hmm. when he's working, and you realize the the gravity of some of the problems he has to deal with and you, yeah. and you realize the the scope of the problems he has to deal with and how many people are looking to him for leadership. You know, we were talking about uh, leadership earlier. That position is the epitome of leadership, right? And so I was always watching to pay attention on on things that I could take away and use in my positions of leadership and it, it it it's a it's a serious business for serious people and and it's it, it's it was really a, a a real blessing and an honor to be able to watch him work. Coach, what's your favorite basketball shoes to play in and your favorite to wear around? Ooh, that's oh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good one. Probably gonna say some pro kids. I like my steep man. You know when I first started playing, that was my shoe. The, and I had the white on whites with the white suede chevron on the yeah. all white. You know, nowadays though, nobody would wear those because they're so darn heavy. Yeah. They used to get wet, and it was like playing in boots. But that that was pro kids. Pro kids were my first real pair of shoes. I had the white suede ones. I had black and gold suede. Wow. And then I switched to ponies. Uh oh. Yeah. That were really cool. <laughs> But my go-to shoe for a long time were Adidas Superstars and Adidas Pro Models. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. once upon a time, the Adidas shoe was better than Nike's. Better than Nike, that's right. It was You're better right. than Nike's. They don't make the Superstars anymore with the rubber shell toe, uh, but you can get some, like, the Pro Model. But then I started wearing the new Nike shoes and the... Uh, for performance, I think the Kobe's are really. I like the Kobe's and the KD's to play in, uh-huh. but to walk around in, I gotta have my Jordans. Okay, I gotta have my Jordans. Gotta have my Jordans. I gotta have my Jordans. Which ones, Coach? Well, it's it's, it's so the threes when I'm chilling, when I when I get dressed I up a it. little, I wear the Elevens when I get dressed up a little bit. <laughs> I knew it. And then when I really want to kill folks, I just wear the ones. I just wear the ones, oh. different colors. I got orange and black ones. I got blue and black. I got purple and black. You know, got some suede. Well, you know, I just lows or highs. 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 Got to do the highs. <laughs> got to do the highs. <laughs> what does Obama wear? He he's not he's not a sneakerhead like that. He's not a sneakerhead like that. So he would have some dressed sneakers on if he has sneakers on. Yeah. You know, he'd have some some. Uh, you know, some brand that I wouldn't know what they were. I don't know how. I don't know why he he ain't had his own shoe yet. Like I mean, that, that the Obama, just call it the yeah, Obama. Right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know, I know. You know, he's he's trying to stay He's trying to stay neutral, right in the middle. He don't want to want to make anybody mad. Mad, right, right. <laughs> we got to get this library built. Yeah. That's yeah, right. yeah well, right. we broke ground on it about a week ago. Yeah. So looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing that go up. Coach, with Michelle Obama as your mm-hmm. sister, and of course, you know, there's a lot of presidential TV shows out there. How close 
Is the White House the House of Cards or the Oval? When you watch those kind of shows on TV and then you go there and you realize, okay, this is a little different, it just kind of spoils it for you because you're like, no, they they don't have this right, they don't have that right, so I'm (laughs) too picky on it. Right. But I think House of Cards was pretty good. And I I didn't watch the whole thing. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. Mm -hmm. To get the real feel of the White House, think about the fact that most of the White House is like a museum. It's got a whole lot of stuff in there that's really interesting from a long time ago. And then the residents, you get to decorate the way you want. Mm. And it's just really, it's, it's very historic. And most of the things that you see on TV, people haven't really been in those parts, right? Except for the old, except for the Oval Office, right? So situation room and all that kind of stuff is, it's like what people think it should be. So, Mm -hmm. so I don't want to ruin it for too many people, but you know, there's some movies that get it closer than others. I'll just put it that way. Coach, what was the toughest stadium you ever played in on the road as a coach and as a player? Oh, that's, uh, that's a good one. So the toughest one to to play in for me was the Palestra. That's where the University of Pennsylvania, our main rival at Princeton was. was, That was the hardest place to play. That place was an old-fashioned box where the the seats were. It felt like everybody was on top of you. And and they used to have this tradition where you, you start the game and the fans are quiet, and as soon as they score... They throw streamers, toilet paper, (laughs) uh, all kinds of glitter all on the court, and they have to stop the game and sweep it off. What? Just like the first minute within the game? First minute of the game. So we, you know we were trying to keep them from scoring for a long time just to to make them mad. We're like pressing and bothering them and making sure we get rebounds. But that was a hard place to play. That was a hard place to play. It's the second hardest place, and we didn't play. We only got to play there once. I'm sure if we played there, if we were in the ACC, it would have been harder. But Duke was hard to play in because the fans are in there. When you get off the bus and you still go into the locker room, they're in there yelling at you, we're going to get you. (laughs) And I was a freshman, and I was like, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? Now, as far as coaching, by the time I was coaching at Brown, Penn wasn't the same. Mm. The The place that when I was coaching at Oregon State, the hardest place to play was Oregon because that mm. was our rival. And before they moved into their new arena, they had a gym that felt like it was as small as the Palestra. Really? And, and this was on yes, campus? And- this was on campus before they built their new arena and they would jump up and down on the bleachers and you could feel the floor going up and down. So you shoot the jump and you feel like you're on a boat, like on a a cruise ship and you're hitting some waves. It was the the weirdest thing. Yeah, man. Yep. That is Yep. University of Oregon. That was the hardest place to coach. That is crazy. Well, coach, I'm going to take you back to old school. What's, what's, What's playing in your car right now? Ooh, um, a little bit of everything. I like my hip hop and rap. If I don't have my phone hooked up to the car, if if I do have my phone hooked up to the car, I've got a playlist on, I I have music on Tidal and I have music on uh, Apple Music. 
usually some kind of hip hop R and B. If I'm if I'm listening to Sirius XM, mm-hmm. I've got the heat on when my kids are in the car, so that takes some of the bad language out. Mm-hmm. But when they're not in the car, I usually have 44 or 45 on. Uh, I like my reggae music. Mm-hmm. We, we usually play smooth jazz while we're having dinner. So we'll have that on. I'll have that on in the car sometimes. Every now and then I'll go to classical because, I, I, you know, we took piano lessons and learned on classical music. So I like a, a, a an eclectic mix. Every now and then I'll listen to some country music, but it's got to be good. Yeah. It's got to be really good. You ain't do you ain't do no names at us yet, Coach. You ain't I know, us no names. I know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Yeah. I, I'm trying to keep the peace. That's, I'm trying to keep a, the that's peace. That's that coach avoiding yeah, question. That's, <laughs> I'm trying to keep the peace. But you know, I, I, I'll tell people I like. I like. Uh, I like Migos. I like the baby. I like. Uh, yeah, Rick Ross in there. I got Rick Ross in the old school stuff. <laughs> I, 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 I like. I like my tribe. Yeah, tribe called Quest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Q tip, yeah. baby. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was when I was working in in New York, Q tip was in my. He, we lived in the same apartment building. Yeah, I got a I got an eclectic mix. Um, so I like music. So we I grew up with my grandfather was playing music in the house. My father would play music in the house all the time. So I like jazz. You know, um, it, so so it's a it, I got a lot of stuff playing. So it's safe to say you got a wide range of stuff. Wide range. Coach, let me ask you this. Do you remember coaching a kid that came from my junior college named Ricky Clatt? Yes. You remember I him? I do remember Ricky Clatt. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Ricky Clatt went to Middle Area Junior College. That's right. That is correct. And I, I never put it together that you guys would have played together. No, we didn't play together. He came after me. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Ricky. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good ball player. Well, he wouldn't have been out there. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, thank you for doing halftime with us. Appreciate it. And again, man, I, I, I we, we got to talk about this because I know your, your time is short. But, man, you played for a legendary coach, Coach Pete. My question is, man, how, how did he influence you? How does it still impact you today? And as well as, you know, he's he's 91 now. Are you guys wow. still in yeah, touch? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Coach Carrill recruited me um, and I he, he recruited me by telling me all the things I needed to work on, mm. which was different from all the other coaches. And uh, so, of course, my father loved that. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, he's like, <laughs> okay, now this is a guy, he understands how to develop folks. And I will tell you that um, I, I, I've, I was fortunate to have a lot of good coaches at Mount Carmel and at uh, uh, Johnny Gage and Biddy Basketball, Bob Hambrick and Biddy Basketball. But Coach Carrill, I learned the most from. Um, and And just the understanding of spacing, understanding of passing, you know, because I was your typical Chicago guy. I was trying to get buckets all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the big things that I learned from him, and I try and pass this along to when I was coaching to my players, and now that I'm not coaching, I tell people all the time, because, you know, guys are always saying, man, I can't get on. I can't, I can't get off. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Mm. Whenever, you, whenever you're having trouble with your own game, Coach Carrill would say, do something for somebody else. That will help your game. Mm-hmm. 
So if you if you're not making shots or you can't get open, set a screen for somebody, make a hard cut, do something on defense, make a pass for somebody. Darn it, if it didn't work out every single time that I got to a certain point where I would start the game trying to do stuff for other people and it enhanced my own game. Mm. So that's 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 one of those things that I worked I learned from him. And then just sort of the hard work that you need to get better. Because, mm. you know, uh, I think Arthur talked about it earlier. You know, you, you grow up playing at the playground or or you play at the uh, at, at wherever the hoop is somewhere. You playing outside on on you're just playing games. Right. And you're yeah. trying to figure out how to stay on the court, how to win and stay on the court, because if you got off, you were going to the junior court or it was going to take you a long time because it was so many dudes <laughs> playing on on these courts, which I think. Guys miss today. They yes. Miss that. Um, yes. But but you never really worked on your game a lot, right? You 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 had practice and you would play games, but you didn't work on individual stuff like you really see guys doing now. To almost too much individual stuff now. But that was my first taste of of getting a one-on-one individual workout with a coach and him put me through like 45 minutes where I'm exhausted at the end. Uh, and it just showed you how much you need to, to, to work. And then from a, from a non-basketball point of view and a coaching point of view, just a lot of really good tips on how to teach the game and, and the technical side of the game and how to not relate to your players so that you, I, I've taken some of the things that, that I didn't think he did as well and tried to augment it for my style because we all know we, we have coaches. They're not perfect. I wasn't perfect as a coach. And mm-hmm. I, tried to, I tried to figure out what my, each of one of my players needed. And, and, th- and that was something that I learned because back then, coaches treated all players the same, right? Yep, so yep. when I started coaching, I was trying to sort of individually get each guy to get motivated to to move in the direction of the whole team. So, man, it was it was a real honor to play for him. We we are still in touch. I missed him this year at the golf outing. Uh Princeton has a golf outing every year and I couldn't go because of some responsibilities I had at work, but uh he's getting up there and uh but he's still you know, my, my daughter ended up playing for Princeton and he would watch her play. You know, I'd see him wow. in games from time to time. So it was really nice, really, really good relationship. And and he was one of those guys that he was hard on his players, but we all feel like he was was much better than than we thought he was. Talk to us about your coaching style and did it change from Brown to Oregon State? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. And I will tell you, I learned how to play from Coach Carrill, but I learned how to coach from Coach Bill Carmody, who was the first coach that I worked for at Northwestern. Um, I just loved the way his mind worked when it came to offense. He was such a thoughtful person on the offensive end. So when I went from being an assistant coach to head coach, when, when I was a head coach at Brown, I was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff's coming at me. I was still learning how to be a head coach. And I was fortunate that I inherited some good players who wanted to work hard. And then we had some, some really good success. And then when I went to Oregon state, I went from a more academic school to guys who came to play, to get developed so they could go to the NBA. Mm. And I had to change my style then because 
that was more sort of one-on-one, getting them prepared, to helping them develop their skills so that they could take it to the next level. You know, we, we, we had quite a few guys make it to the NBA in the short time I was at Oregon State. And then the other thing was there was more of a need for me to help those guys understand that basketball was, isn't just the only way out. See, the guys who were at Brown, you know, those guys, if you thought about it like a baseball game, they, they were like on third base, right? All they had to do was play, play hard, and then they knew they were going back to study. And if they could do that, they'd get home plate and they, 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 they'd get the brass ring. The Oregon State guys were really on first base thinking that basketball was the only way to make it. And I had to spend a lot of time trying to talk to them about other ways of getting to where they wanted to get to. And so it was a higher level of player. And what what happens with a higher level player, you guys know this, people around them assume they're going to make it to the NBA and they start treating them as if they're already there. And it's still a numbers game. So I wanted them to understand, look, you guys are smart enough to do whatever you want to do, but you have to apply yourselves. So I spent a lot of time doing that. So to, to answer your question, that's how my my style changed from Brown to Oregon State. So amazing. Coach, you've had so many amazing things happen in your life. And then your sister comes to you and says, I think my husband's going to run for president. What was that moment like? It was the other way around because he came to me and said, hey, I think I'm going to run for president. We got to figure out a way to get your mom and your sister on board. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, yes. I mean... But they had to be like exciting. No, I mean, they you got, were you not. Had they a... were not excited. Really, they were not excited. So, so let me let me let me paint the picture for you. I looked at it as if you know, ever since I met this dude, he talked about being a politician, and he talked about getting to the highest level, mm. even to the presidency. And everybody thought, yeah, okay. But <laughs> he talked about it, and then when he had the opportunity, I was like. This dude, made, he made it to the NBA for him. That's the NBA for him. Yeah. So I was supportive, but my mom and my sister, they were being very pragmatic. You know, they were thinking about stuff like dinners with the family, being raised the way we got raised by Frazier and Marion Robinson, um, security, safety for the family. So... They were looking at this. This this wasn't their dream. They, their dream wasn't the NBA. Their dream wasn't the, the presidency. Their dream was nice jobs, raise your family, kind of like we got raised, have a little higher level, and that's enough. So he was like, we somehow we got to get them on board. And uh, so I talked to my sister because, you know, it was funny. When I decided to leave corporate America, and go into coaching, that was a big drop in lifestyle, salary, all of that stuff. It was just for the love of coaching. And I almost didn't do it because mm. my dad wasn't around. My mom my mom was, was like, you know, you should do whatever you want. But my sister was the one who said, stop worrying about how much money you're going to make. You're going to get a chance to do what dad always said. Find something you love doing and just do it. Wow. That's what she she gave me that advice. So what I did was I turned it around on her when it came to Barack running for presidency. I said, you know, 
you can't you can't stop him from doing something he loves to do and he said he was going to be doing right and she said yeah you're right and then and then i had to talk my mom into to into it and then we had to talk her into moving out there with him so she could be with the girls cuz i was already coaching at Oregon State and it was no way that i could be close by i was right. on the other side of the country so my mom being able to to do that really made it possible for them to move forward on all that stuff i i just i just couldn't imagine what was going through your sister's head like when it really when he got on the ticket and and she, you know she really knew like this this could happen like like I, I'm wondering what she in her head because like how you said how you guys was raised and I know she's thinking now like if he wins I'm, my life is never gonna be the same I'm I'm gonna be a first lady like how yeah. do I how do I jump into that role We tried to be strategic about it and talk about it as a family and but you just we don't you know we're not a fa- a political family who's right. Like, fathers and grandfathers who've done this, who can kind of relate it to us. Right. We were all just kind of listening to people who were experts and, and you, you can't fathom it just like you can't fathom what it's like to be in the NBA and you're doing all this other stuff. You you just have to experience it. So it was, it was life altering and it was, it was, it was a, a lot to get your mind around. And, and, uh, to their credit, I thought they did a terrific job. I I was always I always felt confident they were doing the most for the most people. Their their kids turned out great. Everybody made it through to the other side without, you know, too much negativity and uh and so now they are are are, are have a, a well-deserved time off. Well, well deserved. I mean, eight year yeah. run. That's Absolutely. a man. That's 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 some. That's better than Michael Jordan, there, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Coach, I know you got to run, but my man Ag got one final question for you. Just hearing your story, you know, just you know, reinvigorated, inspired me and William. You know, like you said, you more excited to talk to us, but we 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 know you and I know, you know, just from the connection of basketball and we just we 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 more excited to have you on our show and we just want to thank you again. But my last question is, what is the next chapter in Coach Craig Robinson's hoop dream? First of all, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys, man. I mean, this is, you guys are really on to something here. This was a great idea. When I saw it, I was like, you guys keep reinventing yourselves. This is fantastic. I told your producer that when Arthur texted me, I had just watched the show and was so excited to hear that you guys wanted me on. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is terrific. So when I think about what's what what's what's on the horizon for my next hoop dream is it's really to to do what i'm doing and representing the coaches and doing more for the college game and it's really important because i think i think we're getting to a point where we have almost an overshot of expectations for kids and parents because the nba is a numbers game now it's it's a numbers game there's 450 jobs and only about 200 of those jobs turn over each year. See, and people don't talk about that because the top eight guys on a team, they're pretty much set. So that's, you know, you, that, that's, 
240 guys right there, you know? That leaves another 200 and something jobs every year with so many people going for it. It is literally winning the gene pool lottery, Mm. right? And the talent level and the abilities are so different from college. It's really easy as, as an NBA executive to go in and see, okay, that guy's got a chance to be an NBA player. Mm -hmm. Most people are not on that list. Mm. So I think what we, what we need to do as college coaches and, and as college administrators and as NBA folks is to be realistic with young people about their chances of making it to the NBA. I don't want to crush anybody's dreams. Everybody should have their dreams, as you guys know, with hoop dreams. And then when you realize that that dream's not attainable, if you're going along that same, while you're having your dream, you're still doing your schoolwork and you're still going to class and you're still getting your degree, you'll be able to pivot when it's time. You'll be able to pivot and do some really interesting things. So I'm keeping my options open this chapter is really important. It's really important to help our coaches. It's really important to help our student athletes. Appreciate you being here, coach. This was well worth it, man. I could I could talk to you guys all day long. I'm the gold of my era. I've been a trending topic. I'm as fly as a feather. My pocket's macroscopic. See, with time, I get better. I'm always in the action, kid. No, I got it locked from Chicago where the toughest live. Concrete jungle, earn my stripes on the pavement there. You make it here, then you can make it anywhere. No comparison. Your game is embarrassing. No one can touch me. I'm all for going there again. Yeah, I think I'm balling like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreaming, trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm balling like I'm Martha Agee. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Yeah, I think I'm balling like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreaming, trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm balling like I'm Martha Agee. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Hoop Dreams the Podcast, an Unlearning Network production. Written and produced by Arthur Agee, Will Gates, Matt Hoffer, with audio engineering from Matt Savage. For more episodes, check us out at www.unlearningnetwork.com. Gotta be a dog to survive in this cold weather. Ice in my veins, no need for a warm sweater. I'm coming forward, all best believe I won't let up, yeah. Hey, I think I'm balling like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreaming, trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm balling like I'm Martha Agee. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Yeah, I think I'm balling like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreaming, trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm balling like I'm Martha Agee. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. about what makes your heart beat a little faster oh you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you yeah or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about 
Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.